America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Afghanistan. Our guest is Ambassador Hamdullah Mohib. Mohib served as Ambassador of Afghanistan to the United States from September 2015 until he was appointed the National Security Advisor of Afghanistan in August 2018. He advised President Ashraf Ghani until the Taliban takeover of Kabul on August 15, 2021. Ambassador Mohib previously served as Deputy Chief of Staff to President Ghani and holds a doctorate in engineering from Brunel University in the United Kingdom. Beginning in 2010, American officials tried unsuccessfully to negotiate ceasefires and a peace agreement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. In 2018, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, Zalmay Khalilzad, led U.S. negotiations with the Taliban without the Afghan government, with the purpose of withdrawing all U.S. forces from Afghanistan. The resulting 2020 accord pledged U.S. troops exit in May 2021 for the Taliban's renunciation of al-Qaeda, reduced violence, and discussions with Kabul. The secretive agreement undercut the Afghan government, America's partners for 20 years, and elevated the confidence of the Taliban and their terrorist and Pakistani sponsors, who saw the signed accord as a U.S. surrender. President Biden delayed withdrawal slightly until September 2021, but adhered to the exit plan despite an intensified Taliban offensive, a massive assassination campaign, and mass murder attacks against civilians. In August of 2021, the Taliban took over large swaths of territory in Afghanistan and ultimately toppled Kabul. Ambassador Mohib fled with President Ghani on August 15th. U.S. forces exited the country at the end of the month after a chaotic evacuation effort. Approximately 120,000 U.S. citizens, visa holders, and Afghans who were in grave danger were airlifted out of Kabul. But hundreds of U.S. citizens and residents, as well as thousands of Afghans who worked with U.S. forces and coalition partners who wanted to build a better future for their country after the hell of Taliban rule from 1996 to 2001, were left behind. Many have been brutalized or murdered. We welcome Ambassador Muhib today to discuss the cause of the collapse in Afghanistan, what is still at stake in Afghanistan, and implications for the United States and its allies and partners. Ambassador Mohib, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's good to see you again, and thank you for joining us at what I know is a very difficult time for you and your family and your friends to help us understand how Afghanistan collapsed in, in August and, and especially why, you know, why, why we're in the situation we're in today. So welcome. So good to see you. Ambassador, thank you for having me and um, you know, for giving this opportunity to be able to talk uh, uh, a little more uh, deeply about the issues um, that led to the collapse um, uh, than what the media allows. Um, I will try to see what we can cover in an hour. There is a lot to talk about, um, uh, but we'll try to do uh, as much as uh, we can. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think you are as important to this conversation as I am, uh, because I want to, I, I, you know, I think it's important that we have the U.S. angle uh, uh, covered here, as well as you know what led to um, the Afghanistan uh, government's own weaknesses. Well, I, I agree, and I think there, there's so much uh, misunderstanding out there, Hamdullah. Yeah, and you've—I'm sure—since you've left, it's added some additional pain to you to, to hear some of the political narratives about the collapse. And I, as you as you reflect on what you hear in the U.S. media, what, what, what do you think? What's your assessment? And what 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 do you think? 
that that the, the the American people fundamentally misunderstand based on how the collapse of Afghanistan was covered? Well, first of all, there is a lot of anger, understandably so, both uh, among the Afghans and the Americans, particularly the veterans uh, who served in Afghanistan. And I know a lot of these organizations and people that I've worked with when I was uh, the ambassador um, here um, in, in Washington and um, and our own uh, ANDSF uh, forces, plus all those who put their uh, their stakes on uh, on the success of the republic, are all understandably very angry. Uh, and the disinformation uh, from which the Taliban and uh, our adversaries have benefited um, have uh, led to even more confusion. Uh, and there hasn't been a clear discussion or multiple discussions that should have. Um, made it clear on what happened, and maybe it wasn't time for that yet. Um, but of course, political messaging around um, around the collapse um, and those who who had the opportunity to provide those political messaging um, took advantage of it um, and, and tried to to try to point it to one direction and and create a blame game rather than trying to understand. I think. Uh, we owe it uh, to the uh, to all of those who sacrificed and believed in the idea of the republic um, and, and, uh, and a free Afghanistan uh, that we have a nuanced conversation um, about what what led to uh, uh, this uh, this fatal failure. I'll tell you, I think that's very important. I think it's important to see the collapse in August in context and. You know, I, in, in battlegrounds, I, I write that, hey, it, was, it wasn't a 20-year war for, from America's perspective. It was a one-year war fought 20 times over. And in the book, I describe what you experienced, which were a number of fundamentally flawed and inconsistent U.S. policies and strategies over time. And I wondered, if, if, as you look back on the series of these strategies, what do you think the turning point was when it began to, uh, when we began to lose the initiative in Afghanistan and uh, and the war was was lengthened and and made more much more costly than maybe it, it would have been otherwise. So HR, if you remember when you were um, the national security advisor, I served in uh, in Washington at the time, and uh, and you worked on something that I thought was um, uh, the first strategy that kind of went beyond. Uh, a, a silo of uh, terrorism uh, approach to looking at terrorism and, and just resolving it from that. It went beyond that South Asia strategy, looked at Afghanistan and what it needed, but it also looked at um, some of the adversaries outside of Afghanistan and perhaps partners in looking at the, the broader perspective uh, in a regional context for this, the problem that Afghanistan had, and rightfully so. Um, the, uh, uh, the the line or the support uh, for Taliban from Pakistan was never clearly defined. Everybody understood it, and there was discussions uh, uh, even in Congress over um, over that support. But never had there been a policy that addressed it. And then there were also internal issues inside Afghanistan on what level and what kind of support the Afghan defense and security forces needed. Um, so um, when I went and became the national security advisor, we really invested um, in, in, in making that policy a success, that strategy a success. We brought the right leadership in place at the Ministry of Interior and Defense um, uh, and, uh, and, we, and at the NDS levels. Um, we put um, uh, uh, support mechanisms to ensure that we are um, uh, we are looking at the regional dynamics uh, properly. And by 2019, I started off late 2018, but when by 2019, the summer, we were already pushing back against the Taliban, taking back districts. We took um, Wurduj uh, uh, and Yamgan districts in Badakhshan, um, Deyak um, um, in, in Khwaja Umari in Ghazni. Um, even uh, as far as uh, um, uh, as Kunduz districts were being taken back, uh, and so there was a push against the Taliban. And by the winter um, or or fall of 2019, we had plans in place um, uh, to push back against the Taliban in the north, 
and and also from the uh, from the east where uh, situation was already stabilized by defeating daesh um, which is uh, isis k in eastern afghanistan and those two were to merge on west and the south uh, in the summer of 2020 um and uh, but um you know the uh, the initiative um uh, or, or the abandonment of the south asia strategy uh, at that time without informing without fully informing us there wasn't a, a notification to say this strategy is being abandoned but by um, practically going towards uh, that negotiated settlement with the Taliban uh, meant that the operations in the air support that the ANDSF received uh, was um, was cut back uh, and so the uh, the offensive operations in 2019 um, uh, automatically came to a halt um, and, and, and so uh, that's stopping of that operation and, and then switching in 2020 from, uh, um, uh, from offensive to active defense, uh, I think was the, uh, the straw that broke the bone of the ANDSF morale. Uh, that combined with the, uh, with the fact that um, uh, with the negotiations made uh, the lines between who is an enemy and uh, who is a uh, is an adversary that we are negotiating or political adversary here uh, blurred so if you are a soldier you have something clear you need you understand whether you fight somebody or not to fight somebody um, and uh, and that that person or that group you're fighting is either an enemy or not and so we had confusing messages coming along one there was no offensive operation. There, it was active defense. It, it didn't give them the instructions to fight. It didn't give them the instructions to, to not fight. Uh, so they were lame ducks waiting to be attacked, one. And then the, the, the group attacking them uh, was not clearly defined as an enemy anymore. Um, so it, it, it created a confusing environment for the ANDSF rank and file uh, in which they operated. So it really doubled down on the fundamental flaws in the Obama administration strategy. And this is what we tried to correct when, you know, when, when we came into the to, to help President Trump decide what to do, what she ultimately did in August of 2017, approve a South Asia strategy. And just to, to recap for our audience, some of the fundamental changes were that we designate the Taliban as an enemy again, right? The Obama administration had said, okay, the Taliban is no longer an enemy, even as they were killing our soldiers, killing Afghan civilians and, and, and Afghan security forces. So what the South Asia strategy did is it put us back on the offensive, designated the Taliban as an enemy. Of course, we increased intelligence and air support for the, the Afghan security forces. But also, as you mentioned, the strategy prioritized governance reforms to, to harden and strengthen Afghanistan against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban, which is in Pakistan, and of course, took a, a fundamentally different approach to Pakistan, confronting Pakistan for its role in perpetuating violence and 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 uh, and continuing to build Taliban and jihadist terrorist capabilities that that of course have, have sadly won out, but importantly, Abdullah, it, it removed a timeline as well, right? And and I think right. this this had a, a psychological effect as you're as you're mentioning, right? It, war is a contest of wills, and I think what you're describing is a loss of the initiative militarily in 2019 when we started what I would have called capitulation negotiations uh, with the Taliban. Uh, and and, it, and it, it delivered that delivered you know really a bolstering of the will of the Taliban and and a psychological blow, I think to the to the Afghan government and security forces and the Afghan people. Could you describe that shift, that shift in 2019? And you mentioned that you weren't consulted about it, right? This is just something that occurred with the opening of these negotiations with the Taliban political commission. Well, Char, I think you, you you pointed to something very important. Uh, where it all started, uh, when the surge in 2009 happened, it was accompanied by a deadline to withdraw. And that made the Taliban um, to understand that they only have to continue this for a certain period of time. And there was hope for them that generated. But it also uh, made the region uh, ponder 
Um, so uh, countries around Afghanistan started to think about um, beyond U.S. presence in Afghanistan, uh, and, uh, and and some started increasing their contacts with the Taliban and maybe even support to them. And then, um, yeah, that was then doubled down uh, with uh, with the idea of uh, direct negotiations with the Taliban without the Afghan government being included. Um, uh, we live in a very complex region, um, and uh, in my own direct discussions with uh, the countries around us, they were very skeptical about what the U.S. was trying to achieve with these direct negotiations with the Taliban. Um, and so said they started um, increasing their own contacts with the Taliban because they believed that uh, the, the, it seems inevitable that the Taliban will return, even if they are not fully in charge of Afghanistan, they will have a big stake. So uh, it, 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 it started a self-fulfilling prophecy in which more and more support went to the Taliban from regional countries and uh, uh, the undermining of the Afghan government um, that was not party to the negotiations. Uh, uh, they were, um, the, the, the Taliban had already won that, that, that debate or, 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 or that argument because they, even outside and even without um, uh, reducing any kind of violence uh, uh, and the continuous uh, uh, killing of Afghans through um, targeted attacks and through uh, suicide attacks um, and any regard for Afghan life, uh, were giving uh, the kind of um, uh, status as if they were a government in waiting while they were in Doha. And they didn't have to uh, lift a finger to do anything um, uh, to be able to earn that status. And so it also sent a signal to Afghan politicians um, and um, uh, 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 active society, including the business community, who started reaching out to the Taliban more actively. Um, and with that uh, uh, um, uh, outreach, uh, the ANDSF were not blinded to what was happening. Um, so rank and file at the community levels, at the, um, uh, uh, at the district and provincial levels also uh, saw that was happening. Uh, and so they also started betting on, on, on act on on a situation in which the Taliban may return. Uh, and while we try to do our best in trying to keep their morale high, try to give them as much clarity as we possibly could, but it was impossible in an environment that was, uh, uh, that, that was full of confusion and, uh, and full of disinformation. Well, this is, this is what's heartbreaking to me is that if, if we were going to leave Afghanistan, why the heck didn't we just leave? Why do we actually... May take a series of decisions and take actions that actually weakened the Afghan government and security forces and strengthened the Taliban on the way out. And you've mentioned several of these already. Uh, one is really just entering into these negotiations in the first place without the Afghan government. Psychological blow, number one. Another, another that you mentioned is stopping the active targeting uh, of the Taliban, the, the offensive operations against the Taliban. That's psychological blow, number two. And then, and then this this uh, this this engagement uh, with the Taliban political commission, which is really just a shop window for the brutal organization that's in charge now in Afghanistan. Uh, this this lack of clarity, right, on on who the enemy is, what the enemy is. It seems, alhamdulillah, that we we conjured up the enemy in Afghanistan we would prefer, right, a, a Taliban that would that would share power, right, a, a Taliban, you know, that that would not go back to the brutality of. Uh, that it ruled uh, with in 1996 to 2001, a Taliban that would you know, respect women's rights. But all the time, as you mentioned, I'd like you to speak maybe a little bit more about this. There was a massive offensive campaign ongoing against the Afghan security forces and government uh, and, and mass murder attacks uh, against your know, maternity hospitals and girls schools. And, and, and then, of course, you know, a, a huge assassination campaign. Um, against individual Afghan leaders who were trying to secure their country and build a better future. So could you describe really this the enemy as you saw it in contrast to the, the, the enemy that we had portrayed along with Mullah Baradar, who we 
who we actively got the Pakistanis to release so we could negotiate with him. As, and of course, he's a, just a shop window, right, for Haibatullah Akinzada. You know, and, and I think it's worth pointing out, as we describe the Taliban, that, you know, the, the person who's in charge of Afghanistan today, right, encouraged his 17-year-old son to commit mass murder by suicide. So these are the people we actually helped put into power in Afghanistan. So w- what was it like to, to, to confront you, the U.S. portrayal of the Taliban and then uh, to, to see that and then have to confront the actual enemy? And how would you describe the, the Taliban to, to our audience? Well, HR, I think, uh, once again, very important topic. Uh, I, I, if you remember, I came to Washington and complained. You were not in office at the time, but I tried to speak with your um, uh, successor, um, John Bolton. Um, I, I wasn't able to get uh, that meeting, but I tried to, uh, to get the message delivered to Washington if those that didn't fully understand what was happening and how we were feeling about um, being sidelined from these negotiations and what it would do. Uh, and, and, you know, this was, this was um, even after the president had already sent a letter uh, to, uh, uh, to Secretary Pompeo and, 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 and asked if this was a withdrawal, that that negotiation should take place with the Afghan government, uh, not, with the, uh, not with the Taliban. But we were assured that it was, for, it was a peace negotiation. So um, the, the question was, if this is what uh, we call peace negotiations, it is not going to result in peace. Um, it, it is going to result in a Taliban takeover and this uh, providing legitimacy to the Taliban, giving them um, an advantage uh, with prisoners' release and the likes of it, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, legitimizing the Islamic State in the agreement are not the way to go about uh, driving uh, peace in Afghanistan. Um, the just for, just for our audience, I just want to make sure our audience knows this is the this is the peace agreement that was so-called peace agreement, uh, which I think is a, it was a surrender document masquerading as a peace agreement in in February of 2020. And then you mentioned the prisoner release, which was the demand that the Taliban put on this agreement, which was to to to, to force the United States to force the Afghan government to release 5000 uh, terrorists and, and, and criminals. Well, uh, to continue, I was shunned after that because of that complaint. The nature of how it came out was not liked by the administration, understandably so. Um, but it continued. Um, it continued to be um, uh, uh, sold to us as a peace uh, a process, and the Afghan government which didn't believe what was happening was going to result in, um, in, in the kind of inclusive peace that the Afghan people wanted, uh, and it was undermining its own peace efforts, um, uh, was then uh, labeled as, uh, as a government uh, that is undermining peace efforts. Uh, and they, there was an entire effort by um, elements outside of the, uh, you know, of perhaps the administration, but people who believed uh, that um, the Taliban should be included uh, uh, in the government, understandably so, um, started whitewashing the Taliban. I mean, we wanted to make peace with the Taliban, but if we wanted to make peace, there had to be um, there had to be. Uh, truth to it on who the Taliban are, why we're making peace with them, uh, and the Afghan people needed to understand and buy that idea uh, instead of uh, instead of it being uh, a regime change uh, um, that that we uh, even then uh, anticipated was going to be the case. So um, uh, th- this started, like you call the capitulation of the uh, uh, the Afghan government. Um, you know the institutions that were there, built uh, with your uh, support, uh, and in 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 for you know many sacrifices both by Afghans and our allies, chiefly the United States, um, were all being undermined. Um, and and in in if those institutions. Uh, were able to conduct and continue uh, uh, its its work. Uh, we would have a different Afghanistan today, and not the problems that we uh, uh, we are currently facing. 
but uh, you know, it, we uh, HR. While I, I I say that, I also want to recognize that we, as the Afghan government. Uh, we also had our own problems. Um, we had problems of uh, organized corruption that was uh, so uh, enshrined in the republic that it was um, it, it was capitulating on its own. Uh, there was, um, you know, impunity for crimes. Uh, 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 there were the the whole system, uh, the way the system was, um, it was so intertwined. When some of these um, uh, these very very uh, 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 corrupt uh, institutions uh, that 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 led to some of the problems that we had. We had issues with those soldiers. We had issues with contractors that were both contractors, but at the same time political stakeholders and and the um, you know and some of the media that didn't have accountability. Uh, mechanisms uh, because they were supported by elements that were also big uh, key players. Uh, that said, we also received mixed messages um, on inclusivity from our partners. Um, so those who were or who were perhaps um, uh, Western allies uh, uh, were 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 encouraged to be included in the government, but at the same time, we were being penalized for um, not doing enough on corruption. So we, there was a myriad of issues that included political regional uh, uh, military tactical military issues um, to our um, you know in incapability of some of the institutions so when when I talk about one of some of the problems that that were in our bilateral um, uh, engagement uh, that doesn't free us from all the other issues that were already uh, very prominent and also, uh, uh, contributed um, uh, massively to the end result that um, uh, that is uh, the collapse of the Afghan the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Yeah, these these are groups, obviously, who perpetuated the perpetuated state weakness, right? Because these were criminalized patronage networks Correct. that were hollowing out state institutions that you know we were trying to build together. Uh, because they they actually were stakeholders in state weakness because it was the weakness of institutions. That gave them impunity and and the ability to essentially divert assistance and and steal from the Afghan state. But I, I'll tell you, Hamdallah, I, I always thought that one of the reasons why these groups remain strong is that is that the political settlement in Afghanistan became reliant on unchecked criminality, is one is one reason, and and another is because we kept saying we're leaving, and many of these groups were motivated by 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 building up they want to build up a power base in advance of a post US Afghanistan if right. the situation devolved back into civil war right from like right. from 92 to 96 and so it was our short term approach to the long term challenge of Afghanistan that actually i think uh lengthened the war made it more difficult and 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 weakened uh, the Afghan state. And of course, as you mentioned, though Afghan was Afghanistan would be reliant on the international community for the foreseeable future. Uh, but I think between you know 2017 2019, it was at a it was at a sustainable level, right? Where we could have we, we could have worked together, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, uh, and allowed Afghans to continue to take the brunt of the fight on a modern day frontier between barbarism and and civilization, and. Uh, and so what what more do you think could have been done in that period? One of the things that I, is kind of heartbreaking to me again is the emphasis on negotiating with the Taliban and that being our main diplomatic effort. While in Afghanistan, we closed our consulates across the country in Herat, in Mazar, in Kandahar, in Jalalabad. And we could have, I think, played more of a role in bringing Afghan communities together, right? between you know the various Pushtun communities and the Shor Nazar groups and so forth. It, because it was the lack of cohesion within Afghanistan that also created opportunities for the Taliban. Could you talk more about the political fragmentation of Afghanistan in this period and maybe even take us up to the point when you and President Ghani flew to Mazar uh, a couple of months right before, before the collapse? What was it like internally, politically in Afghanistan? Well, um, internally, the political dynamics um, were very uh, uh, fragmented. Um, there, there were divisions on multiple level, uh, but uh, the criminal economy um, and and some of those uh, reasons that you mentioned 
um, led to even more fragmentation. Um, so they, in, in 2009, um, uh, when the elections took place, that, that, that's when I think a lot of the problems started to, to begin. Uh, you know, a clear fragmentation started to appear um, uh, in the political class and the the way politics had to be conducted, um, as I stated, you know, it was it was already clear, uh, like you said, that um, the U.S. is going to withdraw uh, because it clearly said it was going to withdraw. Um, so um, political leaders in Afghanistan started thinking about a post-U.S. Afghanistan and what you know how they would survive in that post-U.S. Afghanistan. Uh, this combined with, with with the region also preparing for that kind of a country, um, and and started um, actively supporting um, elements uh, in the country that would then uh, secure their own interests um, in a post-U.S. Uh, Afghanistan. A big part of uh, my three years in office was. Uh, how do we prevent that kind of a civil war where there is not one proxy supporting one group, which is what we had a problem with, but multiple proxies fighting each other and, and turning the country once again to rubble and, and, and not just destroying property, uh, but once again uprooting millions and millions of Afghans from their country. Uh, and so um, you know, that, that, that was, I think, a, a major national security threat that I thought uh, was, um, was at the lead of, uh, at the top of our priority lists. And, 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 and so the, the, the groups thinking about their survival being in, uh, in supporting um, or, or creating uh, a, 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 a a block for themselves that would be uh, uh, that, that that would require or could attract support uh, from outside uh, started to fragment the society or the, uh, the 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 polity even more. It wasn't the society that was so fragmented. It was the political structures that were fragmented that were supported. Like I said, there were media entities that were supported by uh, foreign elements without clear understanding of what their goals and objectives were. Uh, and, and the government uh, could not question it because, uh, you know, because uh, again, the, 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 the inclusivity uh, understood by our, uh, our partners meant that uh, only these, um, uh, some of these individuals being included means inclusivity, not societal inclusivity, not uh, uh, inclusivity at the level of um, you know, civil society and other groups represented. Um, so uh, inclusivity may, meant uh, elite inclusivity and, and the elite uh, had to think about their own survival post-US uh, post withdrawal. Um, and so we had a very divided society. When I uh, became the national security advisor, uh, one of my first reports to President Ghani um, uh, after uh, uh, the, my, my assessment in the first uh, three, four, four weeks was that we're not uh, militarily, militarily weak. The ANDSF is fighting and giving sacrifices. And that is a proof that that's not where we're going to lose. Where, where we're going to lose is uh, at the political front. What we need to do is bring and create political unity in Afghanistan. And we tried. I, I, I personally put a lot of my effort into uh, trying to bring um, opposition figures into, the, uh, uh, into government. Uh, that was one way of making that happen. Uh, try to consult with political leaders outside of the government uh, to try to include them. Um, but then we, um, uh, we had this political process that was also uh, ongoing, uh, uh, the, the peace initiative um, you know, led by Ambassador Khalilzad, which gave people other kinds of hope. Um, I, I, I must have come across myself uh, at least uh, 20 political figures who all believe that they are going to be the head of the interim government arrangement post-peace uh, negotiations. So we, we had a very divided society. Um, and, and, and if you couple that with, uh, um, with the uh, financial interests of some of these individuals who also were contractors, military contractors, uh, to um, the, uh, the Afghan Ministry of Defense and Interior, 
uh, in their own interests meant uh, they uh, it, it, it weakened that singular purpose that was for the defense of the country. You said it right. If you want to fight, it, it's a matter of resolve. And so that resolve was being broken at multiple levels. And, you know, and instead of there's a mantra these days, of course, you hear, I think, out of the out of the Biden administration in particular, we need more diplomacy, more diplomacy. But of course, that begs the question, for what purpose? Right. And and what we did is I think we weakened the Afghan government diplomatically uh, and, and actually advocated for this heinous organization, the Taliban. Uh, to, to have to have a role uh, in, in, a, in a sort of a coalition government. Of course, this was based on the assumption that the Taliban would share power, which they never intended to do. Could you talk more about this kind of secret diplomatic effort by Zal Khalilzad, who I should mention, was a, a longtime rival of President Ashraf Ghani? There's a personal dimension to this, I, I believe. Uh, but but what we wound up doing this period of time is advocating for this so, sort of idea of a coalition government. And can you maybe talk about how uh, Zal Khalilzad was working with people like pres- former President Karzai uh, and and uh, and and uh, uh, and Chief Executive Officer Abdullah Abdullah uh, to undercut President Ghani in this and advance this idea right of a coalition government. Uh, with the Taliban as a as a as like a one third part of the, of the government. Well, HR, the the, uh, the idea for how to achieve peace um, uh, or, or the, uh, the the opinion in which you know President Ghani believed that uh, peace would come to Afghanistan and that of Ambassador Khalilzad was very different. Um, you know, first of all, uh, we. We were led to believe that there was a peace agreement, and you know I've read comments um, in the last uh, four months uh, since uh, Ambassador Khalizad has publicly spoken, and other officials um, have spoken um, off the record. Um, it had made it clear uh, what our suspicion was, which was that it's a withdrawal agreement. But what we couldn't understand at the time and, and didn't you know, were reassured that it wasn't a withdrawal agreement, but a peace agreement was what, why it was being conducted in such a manner. If peace is to be brought to Afghanistan, we need, first of all, the most important category that needs to be included is, are the victims. You know, those people who lost their lives um, as a result of the Taliban brutality, the attacks, um, we cannot ignore those uh, those groups. We cannot in grow, in, in ignore the ANDSF that have been fighting the Taliban. And what happens? You know, it's you know even on a practical practical. And I would level, say, Hamdul, I would say, and the future victims of the Taliban, which we've seen play out right since the Taliban's right. taken over. I mean, if we're lamenting the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. But sadly, it's a crisis that we we helped precipitate. Absolutely, you know, HR. I, be, be, without you know, we'll come back to the other point. But you address something that I is is very close to my heart, and I want to talk about it. Is is who are we protecting post Taliban? A post Taliban um, uh, takeover. Those people who had contacts and worked with uh, with Americans or other allies um, were evacuated. Sure. But you know who is actually being targeted are those people who were locally fighting the Taliban. So these are local police, for example, in eastern Afghanistan, local police were very prominent. They protected their districts from the Taliban. And so there were local grievances that the Taliban are now revenging uh, and, 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 and taking revenge on. Um, in Kandahar, we had the same issue uh, across the south. We, we have these issues in the in the, the Paktia area. Uh, we have it throughout Afghanistan, but some areas where there were local forces that were strong and had been uh, uh, institutionalized uh, are the ones that are paying the price now. And nobody is evacuating them because they didn't. They don't qualify for any kind of uh, uh, evacuation because they didn't work. Closely. They're not going to get a special immigrant visa or a P one or P two no, visa in the US, because right? they don't have the contact. They didn't have the advisors that work with them, but they were critical to the mission. These people protected 
uh, everybody else around it. You know, when we when I, we when we talk about the collapse taking place uh, in the secret uh, agreements that were made with the Taliban that led to the collapse, uh, part of it was um, uh, 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 was uh, the fact that some of these uh, groups were no longer supported. For example. Uh, the local police project was um, uh, was was cut down in 2020, uh, and so it meant that many police uh, had never received their salaries uh, for many many months. Uh, they couldn't have been integrated into the national police. They couldn't have been integrated into the national army because their structures were different. The age groups, the exp- uh, the requirement for the for the national army differed. Uh, uh, and so they couldn't have been integrated in, but they had to protect their, uh, their their communities. They had to protect. They had to fight to protect themselves, and eventually were forced to make deals. Uh, the other uh, uh, the the other element that actually created the collapse was um, the agreement that the Taliban would not attack. Uh, uh, capitals, um, um, you know, district centers and um, uh, pr- pr- provincial centers, uh, but it didn't stop them from attacking all of the um, uh, outliers that were protecting the center, uh, and so they kept targeting those uh, outliers, those outposts that uh, that prevented them from uh, uh, massing on the centers uh, in 2020, while we had no offensive operations going on. Uh, the other uh, uh, agreement that that we found out in the last weeks um, before the collapse was that there was an agreement not to take any deep strikes. So the Taliban um, structured their military strategy around that, meaning uh, right, they, so they could marshal their forces, for example, and what became known as the northern strategy. Right. So they're massing forces. And 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 Abdul, I'd like you. Please go on with this. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, please also talk about the nature of the Taliban. Right? There's this idea that the Taliban is this kind of popular rural movement, right? That sort of emerged na- naturally uh, in in, uh, in in Afghanistan. When in fact, it is a it is a transnational terrorist organization that is that it was funded and trained by Pakistan's ISI. And and other terrorist organizations like the Haqqani Network, with the assistance of Al Qaeda, and funded by massive donations, right? That came out of out of Gulf states, not state sponsored, but Gulf donors, uh, as well as the Russians and the Iranians. So, could you talk more about the nature of this offensive, right? The, the, and the marshalling of it, as you are, but also, could you also describe the, the nature of of the Taliban as a as a as a military and political organization? So um, yeah, I, I'll come to that. And first, uh, what we discovered in the in the last weeks of the republic uh, was that the Taliban were splitting their attack groups into um, a, a, into subgroups, and only sending a part of that group uh, to launch an offensive uh, against um, against a base. And the norm would be. Um, the ANDSF would um, uh, would put a defense, uh, send uh, reinforcements, send air support, um, and once enough casualties um, uh, or, or or the Taliban's um, uh, groups were weakened, that attack would be considered uh, ended or thwarted, and and the um, uh, the base where the attack was would start to. Uh, evacuate their injured and and taking care of what they have lost and keep account of that. But what we started, what we discovered, was that there were repeat attacks on the same base. Once an attack took place, reinforcement were sent, air support was sent. Um, a repeat attack would happen, and uh, and, and you know, talking to commanders, eventually we discovered that the Taliban were splitting their groups into subgroups because they had agreed. To a certain distance in which they would no longer be uh, uh, under target, so there were no airstrikes would take place beyond that distance, and, and so they were exploiting this uh, uh, this strategy. While the ANDSF were not aware, we only found out the ANDSF only found out this um, after we saw this um, this trend that they they, they uh, that the same base would have four different waves of attacks in one night, eventually leading to its collapse. 
Um, so uh, there were there were agreements at the military level in which the ANDSF had no presence. And if you are party to the conflict and you are uh, you, you, you're you're um, uh, uh, subjected to responsibility, uh, but don't know what agreements were being uh, made with the Taliban in Doha, uh, the, the cell that came out of as a result of the Doha agreement, in which uh, uh, U.S. forces and the Taliban coordinated. We have so we have so much to talk about, uh, and we're we're running out of time, sadly. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you, please, could you could you take this opportunity to maybe set the record straight on the last several weeks uh, in, in August of, uh, of of this past year, and in particular the uh, yours and President Ghani's departure from from Afghanistan? What, what precipitated that? Uh, and then I'd like to talk more about about prospects for the future as well. But just your thoughts on and your personal experience uh, in the in those last uh, uh, couple of weeks uh, in Kabul. Well, uh, you're right. There is a lot to talk about, and you you mentioned earlier about the um, the groups that were working together in the Taliban and the in the nature of the way they're looked at. We had discovered um, in our own uh, uh, intelligence reports that were. Um, that you know, an attack taken place um, in Kabul uh, that was claimed by Daesh, uh, ISIS-K, uh, had its roots in, uh, in, uh, in the same networks that supported um, uh, or, or were linked to uh, um, Haqqani network, for example, and were funded by lashkar taiba So transnational groups supporting an attack that was then eventually claimed by um, uh, by ISIS-K. So, you know, we, we had this discussion with, uh, with partners around that we, we, we have to stop looking at these groups in silos. This is a platform, a base, a foundation from which they, they attract their support and they work together. And so maybe their political structures are, are different, uh, but the, the the purpose of um, what they wish to achieve is all the same. But it's a it's a long topic, and I'm I'm sure uh, I hope that we'll have a, an opportunity at some point in the future to talk about that in more detail. Um, as to the um, uh, the last weeks of um, uh, of the the republic, we really tried uh, first of all to put up a strong resistance um, uh, to be able to create. As we were told, a stalemate uh, that would that would push the Taliban um, uh, to to negotiate in earnest. But you know, uh, the reasons why we had to create a new stalemate when we had one earlier on uh, is something that um, is is for you know a longer discussion. Uh, but to to prevent the the progress of the Taliban and try to hold them so that we could create an environment in which true negotiations would take place uh, and an inclusive Afghan government could be formed. Uh, I personally was engaged in the last week uh, on, uh, on trying to create an environment in which that would happen, in which there would be impunity um, for ANDSF uh, and there would be immunity for those uh, the, the groups there, uh, that, that you know, the pro-government supported groups, um, for civil society, for journalists, for women groups. Um, for political uh, leaders, um, uh, 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 so that a, a true agreement would come to play. Uh, to come to play, but the the, the once the um, uh, this collapse began, it had it, it had demoralized at such a deep level that that was no longer possible. Uh, and it was clear in my own discussions with military leaders that they were not able to resist because. Uh, you know, as we 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 had discussed earlier, uh, the enemy was now blurred, and and so the Afghan security forces who fought bravely and defended the uh, the the republic bravely when they knew their purpose, their purpose was now uh, undermined, and they were told that this fight was no longer viable when they were hearing interviews from our international partners uh, that the fight was not worth dying for, the purpose was not worth dying for. And so it weakened uh, the Afghan security forces. And then uh, what we were trying to achieve um, in the end uh, or was to still to see if, if there would be true negotiations that could take place with the Taliban. 
that wasn't the case. And, and the end departure by President Ghani um, uh, was a, a, a fundamental objection to uh, the nature of the negotiations because the nature of this negotiation now came down to give the Taliban legitimacy by handing over power to them. And and, and, and if President Ghani, and we did that, uh, that would have uh, disrespected all of the sacrifices the ANDSF made. The, The issue was no longer inclusive government. The issue now was the Taliban may include a couple or a few leaders from the Republic, and that is it. Everything else would be an Islamic emirate, uh, but just a couple of the people um, included. And that, you know, to, to be able to do that, the Taliban could do that today, and, and, and it, it doesn't stop them from, from doing that. But President Ghani did not want to give legitimacy to the Taliban uh, in this format, in this Islamic emirate that didn't include the values of the Afghan people, that didn't protect the Afghan people, the, the, those who aspired to have um, a democratic state. Uh, and so I think uh, I, I, I fully understand the anger that is out there in, in certain uh, communities and, and among Afghans um, that it could have been handled. It could have been handled differently uh, years ago, it could have been handled uh, differently. We could have had a different outcome uh, three years ago. We could have had a different outcome two years ago. Had there been clear, transparent discussion with the Afghan government in which we could have prepared for what scenarios were best uh, achievable. But that didn't happen. And in the last week, uh, it was no longer, uh, or in the last two weeks, when the U.S. was definitely withdrawing, the Taliban were not going to negotiate in earnest and were not going to negotiate and were in no mood for negotiation that would create a political uh, uh, environment uh, that would protect the Afghan people. It was going to be a surrender agreement. And President Ghani uh, didn't want to sign a surrender agreement to the Taliban uh, and, and, and legitimize them in that way. Well, just for, for the last question here, what I'd like to do is ask you to describe the situation in Afghanistan today. And then what, what is your reaction to those who say, hey, well, well, in, in the interest of humanitarian support of the Afghan people, uh, we have to unfreeze assets uh, and uh, to, the, to the Taliban uh, government. There are those who are a- actually advocating for recognizing the Taliban government, uh, which I, I think would be a, a disaster for the Afghan people because the humanitarian crisis is connected right to the to the political hell that they're living in now under the Taliban. But then is there any, what, what, is, what do you see as an alternative vision of the future for Afghanistan? Is there any effort to, to organize an Afghan government in exile, to take the legal actions that you might be able to take to, to gain access to resources and prevent them from going to the Taliban and strengthening the Taliban? So what is the situation that you see today in Afghanistan? What are the implications for U.S. policy? And do you have an alternative vision for the future of the country? Well, first of all, um, the argument that the Taliban um, uh, uh, will change and then then there will be legitimacy or, or recognition of the Taliban. If they were to change, they would have done this in these early days because now all of the eyes are, were, are on the Taliban and, um, and, and they could gain their political objectives uh, uh, now when they... When, 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 they had everything in their control. They didn't do that. So the hope that they will change in the future, uh, after giving them enough time to consolidate, uh, is 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 perhaps not a realistic one. One. Second, those who claim that you know the Taliban crave legitimacy and and recognition, absolutely they do. They do want recognition, but you know, we shouldn't forget that they are de facto recognized right now. They were when they were in Doha. Foreign ministers were meeting with them uh, 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 and, and talking with them for representatives. And, and, and even now, their embassies active, the Taliban travel uh, freely, um, uh, maybe not all over the world, uh, but they, they travel and they engage with, uh, uh, with the world. They are not the Taliban of the 1990s where there was no uh, engagement with the outside world. Today, they have that engagement and they continue negotiations. So 
uh, you know, we, we must be careful about what we say in terms of recognition, because I, I believe some countries have now already de facto recognized, and maybe for political reasons, they cannot make that announcement. Um, and the other part is, um, is the humanitarian relief. Look, you know, while the, the Taliban is, um, you know, discussion is one-sided, there is true humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan right now. And those people deserve to be supported. And we must find creative ways uh, to reach to the most vulnerable Afghans um, in the country, those displaced and now uh, by, uh, by drought and in these recent floods, um, have created even more issues. We also have many Afghans who, have who are displaced uh, internally, but also refugees uh, uh, that are not uh, you know, uh, fully recognized right now. There are you know, people who have been evacuated and we are thankful uh, for the support that we have received from, those ally from our allies for doing that. But their situation is not really ideal right now. People are still waiting for their papers uh, to be processed. They're, uh, they're, they're held up in camps and under very difficult circumstances. Uh, some feel as if they're even like prisoners. We can't go out, uh, do anything. They're held in camps uh, waiting for decisions to be made. So I think you know, there is a multitude of efforts that need to be, uh, that need to be, that need to take place. We need to care for the ANBSF soldiers um, that have been evacuated outside uh, and, you know, do what is necessary to, to integrate them to societies, to find livelihoods for them so they're not a burden and they can actually live respectable living lives um, and earn respectable uh, uh, living. There are those ANDSF uh, uh, soldiers and pro-government forces that are still in Afghanistan who may not qualify for uh, the kind of support that um, or evacuation that have that, that, that others have benefited from. So we need to to reach those, and and the plight of those that are being prosecuted needs to be taken very seriously. Um, we have a humanitarian crisis of, you know, with children uh, uh, and, and, and the most vulnerable population uh, inside Afghanistan that uh, I, I think we need, to, uh, we need to reach. And then uh, continue to engage with Afghan leaders uh, to work out uh, a way forward for Afghanistan um, that could create an inclusive Afghanistan. What I'm sure of is that this situation is not going to last. Uh, uh, very long, uh, because the Taliban are repeating the very same mistakes that the Republic did in the governments before that, in which they monopolized uh, power and, and, and didn't care for the the causes of the other um, groups. Afghanistan uh, is a very diverse society, and um, it needs uh, a diverse government and an approach um, that could um, satisfy all of Afghans. Um, so what we need to first of all do, I think among Afghans is to create a single narrative. Um, the Afghan political uh, class is still very divided um, and th there is even more divisions now uh, among the diaspora because of what happened. It's, it's very easy to shift blames um, but I think it's time we all own the problems that we have and work towards um, uh, an Afghan solution that would be supported by our partners, people like yourself, but you know our uh, administrations in the United States and other allies that could then support a cause uh, that would be truly Afghan-owned. Uh, and and if the Taliban wish to um, uh, wish to see uh, an Afghanistan in which the Afghan people are, are, are happy and can live, uh, and there is broader support, it needs to have um, a, a broader uh, set of ideas, uh, um, not, uh, uh, not this very narrow-minded um, government that is currently being enforced. Ambassador Rohib, I, I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you so much for helping us learn about uh, a continuing battle uh, in Afghanistan, right? Wars don't end when one party disengages. And sadly, I think the war in Afghanistan has just entered a new, even more dangerous and 
and uh, and 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 costly phase. Uh, but thanks for helping us learn about, about the situation in Afghanistan, uh, the how and why of of, of the collapse there, uh, and and a, and a country that remains important to building a, a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It was good to see you. Thank you, General McMaster, for your for for, for this opportunity. I think. It's the tip of the iceberg. There is this discussion uh, uh, will continue to last for uh, for many years to come uh, on what happened and how to go forward. Uh, but thank you for doing your part in uh, in in beginning that discourse. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm glad I was able to speak with you today. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work. To hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.